listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I wish I was as hip as him. I swear to God, he's not only a great comedy writer, but I see his post on Facebook, and he's got that great head of gray hair and cool glasses and dressed to the nines. And I swear, if I was walking around London and I saw him, I would think he was part of Roxy Music. That's how cool he is. And my guest today is Tom Leopold. How you doing, Tom? Hey, Steve. Well, I'll tell you what. I wish I was as cool as myself. <laughs> I got to tell you, you know? I, I, I see your post on Facebook. You just, you look like a hip guy. Is that inherent or did you learn it over the time? Well, I you mean my clothes or my just my, my, you, my glasses? Your clothes, well, you know, your look. Well, I, uh, I always had a theory. I've been a comedy writer for so long that... Um, when I first started comedy writing, I would see other comedy writers like wearing Daffy Duck t-shirts and coming in for interviews and, you know what I mean, dressing like they're funny, you know, instead of, uh, you know, uh, dressing, you know, like uh, they don't have to prove anything. You know, there's a, there's a phrase where he's used in comedy writing, dress British, think Yiddish. <laughs> and that's uh, kind of what I like to do. Now... You, how did you get into comedy writing? Because you've had a career for a long time. You've worked with so many, on so many great shows. You were, I know you worked close with Harry Shearer and, and uh, Christopher Guest. How did you uh, get into the whole comedy thing? Um, well, I was started out as an actor. I met Christopher Guest, uh, you know, Spinal Tap and uh, Best in Show, and Michael McKeon, also in Spinal Tap. <coughs> and uh, I moved to New York at 17 out of high school. I grew up in Miami. Uh, strangely enough. And um, I went up there and I met those guys. They had been in college already two years. I just out of high school. And uh, I, it's, and when I met those guys, I realized, wow, I must be pretty funny because these guys are really effing funny, you know? And I realized I had uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of been building a little comedy warehouse in myself. You know, I hadn't realized it until I met, you know, I didn't know I could play good until I met better players, you know? Or good as good players, so that's so I was acting and I acted for, you know, I would write and act. But 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 when I was about twenty, Christopher Guest and I got went up to the National Lampoon magazine. I don't know if your listeners remember that old magazine. It was a magazine and a radio show, kind of a humor magazine. I'm sure you might remember it, oh, and yeah. uh, kind of like the Onion of t- is today. And we ended up went up there and met the Henry Beard and. Uh, Doug Kenny, rest his soul, and Henry Beard, and they said, they said, you guys have a story for the magazine? And we hadn't planned anything, so we just made up a story about a guy who goes to his high school reunion, and when he gets there, everyone in the town has the legs of a gnat, an insect, you know? And they liked it, so we started writing all these articles for the National Lampoon magazine, and then they had a radio show, too, uh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and then we both started contributing to that, but I still was, you know, I would, so I'd be off acting like in a, you know, uh, in regional theater or up in this and that. And, and I would write stuff to send into the radio. And then slowly over time, uh, you know, the writing became the primary thing. I performed along in a lot of stuff I've been in, I've written, helped to write, but my, my career really was, it became just base, you know, number one, a comedy writing, uh, career you know and it just sort of evolved i i never thought i'd uh, you know having never read a book i you know i never thought i'd be 
writing novels and, and, and writing comedy. I mean, I read a couple of books, both about the Kennedy assassination, but that was about it. Now, <laughs> so no. show business, show business biographies. Now, That's now, about it. what kind of kid were you? Were you a funny kid at all? I mean, for some reason, you had that direction to go to New York. At, you said seventeen. I mean, that's yeah. pretty. That's pretty ballsy. Well, I, he was, and uh, um, well, I always wanted to be in showbiz. You know, I, I and so I figured, well, I guess if I'm in showbiz, I want to be an actor, right? So, um, and I worked right along, um, uh, but. Uh, my father was hilariously funny, really, really funny. And um, so I picked up a lot from him. I mean, and I hadn't really realized, I mean, he could tell the story about like, my mom and he going on vacation and he'd tell this, he'd have a party and, and go into like an hour riff on, you know, how the air conditioning didn't work and how the guy smelled driving into the hotel and just re-reaving these stories back in. And these, and I, he was hilarious. So I got a lot of it from him. And, uh, the kind of kid I was was uh, sickly, really. You know, it's pretty cliche. I was uh, very sick with asthma in the 50s and 60s. And uh, so I was in bed a lot. So I got to watch a lot of I Love Lucy. And, you know, I got to watch a lot of funny television. And so I think it just... Uh, but I really... I was always kind of in trouble at school. I didn't do well. Um, and I wasn't that... I was maybe a little funny with my friends, but... It's really when I, uh, you know, moved out that I, it sort of had been playing. I didn't, hadn't realized I had been, you know, growing this, uh, this ability, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was pretty much up in my room listening to Frank Sinatra records and everybody else is listening to the Beatles. I, you know, so I was one of those cliche, I was hurt into semi-art. That's how yeah. I like to describe it. Now, you said, you know, you start writing for National Lampoon. And now, when do you sit there and putting in your mind that you can write for TV? Because I'm sure you know, you know, you writing for radio and writing its sketches. It's more different than writing, you know, sitcoms. I mean, how was your path to the sitcom? I know you wrote for like Chevy Chase and you wrote for Steve Allen and stuff like that. But how did you get yeah. those jobs? How did you parlay that and then parlay that into TV? Well, I had done a bunch of things before this one incident. I'll tell you about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I got a shot glass stuck in there from last night. Anyway, um, uh, and so I was acting and writing, uh, doing different shows, you know, kind of uh, one-offs, the special here, this and that. And then when she, my real break, I would say, as a comedy writer came when, uh, because of the lampoon, uh, Chris and I, and I, and I knew, we knew a lot of the guys that became, I probably knew more guys that became famous than anybody else. I always say I'm, I'm not near great. I'm just near the greats, you know, <laughs> but I knew, you know, I knew Belushi, I knew Bill Murray. I knew, uh, uh, God, her name just went, Gilda, yep. Brian Murray and all the guys, uh, from there. But anyway, um, so Chevy also did stuff there, Chevy Chase. And, and then maybe people won't remember, but at, the, at a moment when Chevy was on Saturday Night Live, the first series, first uh, year he became like a sensation you know and the biggest thing in the country and and uh i met him and i knew him slightly but we were at a party uh, after saturday night live uh, at uh, dan Aykroyd's loft and uh, it sounds like i'm name dropping but i don't know anybody outside of show business you know? <laughs> i don't know anybody outside um and uh so i'm sitting there and uh, 
uh, and Chevy Chase comes over to me. And uh, now he's kind of, you know, just be very big from the show. He's still on the show. And he sits down next to me and he says, uh, I hear you're the funniest guy. And I said, I, I just said, yeah, yeah. I didn't try to be funny. I just agreed with him, you know. And he thought that was hilarious. So when he let, was leaving Saturday Night Live, uh, I got a call from him one night. And he, and he said, look. They just gave me a, a big special on NBC as part of my thing to leave the network. So I want you to write on it, but I only want you to write on I love this story because it, it, it really affected me as a guy who would hire comedy writers later down the line. But he says, I, I want you to write on my special, but I only want you to write on it if what I heard you say, you actually said. And I said, well, what was that? And um, you had a friend coming to visit you we were doing a play in Boston and yeah. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah. And they said, you know, I'll come up, I'll stay two or three weeks. And you said, stay two. <laughs> and did you say that? And I said, yeah, this is okay. I want you right on the show. And then I ended up writing more than half of the show or a great deal of the show, but it was not even that great a joke. But when I realized that, you know, and then having hired a lot of writers and read a lot of people's scripts and, you know, all you have to kind of hear is one thing to know that who the guy is behind the shovel, you know, like uh, how he thinks. You don't have to hear that much. And I always admired Chevy for that. And then that was sort of my big, I suppose, comedy writing break. And then from that, it, it, I just kept going, you know, with a little acting here and there. Did you when you when you got that break? I mean, I know Hollywood's different now than it was then. When you got that break. Did you just start getting juice? I mean, like you know, they they say the story when someone's hot, someone's hot. I mean, you're you're friends with Chris Christopher, and you know the movie, the big picture. You know, Kevin Bacon's hot, and then his career right. just hits the shitter. Did, yeah. did you feel that? Did people just sit there and start saying? Because you're right, Chevy Chase was like the hottest thing back then. I mean, he was just huge. Yeah. Did people say, okay, this guy? this guy's got the chops because he just wrote for Chevy. And did you just start getting offers? Uh, well, I, I kept starting. I just kept getting jobs. I get, you know, I mean, my, my agent then could, uh, I would, you know, it was much easier to get the next job, you know, writing for Steve Allen, who I had idolized as a kid, you know, the way he, very much in Britain for, but, um, so, uh, you know, and then one thing just came after another. And but but still, even then, I was still kind of acting. And I acted on both Chevy shows and and some HBO shows with him. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it became easier to get work. I wouldn't say, you know, people were breaking my door down, but it was a great credit that really put me in front of a lot of people uh, ahead of the line, you might say. And uh, that was an unusual experience, you know, because, you know, I, I was always lucky that I made, never had a job outside of show business. So I kept working as an actor. But I also, as I say to young people who want to go into show business, the secret of the career is a low overhead. So I had a real cheap apartment so I could stay in show business. You know, I had a really rent controlled apartment in the village. So uh, I was able to, you know, make it on what I when I did work. And then after that period, uh, you know, it sure was a lot easier. That's for sure. 
what was the village like at that time? Like, you know, SNL was blowing up, you know, you were living there. I mean, did it, did it feel special? Cause I'm sure the music scene was great. I'm sure Lou Reed was hanging around. I mean, what, what was, what was the feeling? What was that whole atmosphere back then? Well, I lived, even then I, I always lived back and forth from LA, but I loved the village and I, and I, and uh, I lived there on in a great cute street, West 11th street. And I just loved it. But what, one thing that was different, <clears throat> excuse me, is that, it wasn't like uh, Rodeo Drive at that point. You know, it was like still hip and cool and little shops. And, you know, it hadn't become like, um, oh, gosh, you know, uh, expensive stores on uh, Bleecker Street. You know, it was still cool little shops and bookstores. And, and uh, you know, in the Village Vanguard was there. So you go, you could go see Charlie Mingus. You know, hear jazz. I wasn't even into jazz, but I took a date one there that night, and Charlie Mingus hit on my date. <laughs> I was never more honored in my life. It was, it was from, I felt it was a great tribute to me, you know, that he would hit on my date. Um, uh, and so it was just, you know, and everybody I kind of knew lived around the village, and you'd run into this guy and that guy. You'd stand in front of you. And, and remember back in those days, there's no cash machine, so you you get a check for twenty dollars. You, you know, if you couldn't, if you needed cash one night, you have to go to your deli guy, you know, and ask him to cash you a twenty dollar check, or you know, or wait till Monday where I'd be in line. And being in line in the West Village was like, you know, Richie Havens was behind me waiting to cash a check, and you know, you see all these kind of folk guys and girls, and uh, you know, it's that point in your life where. Uh, you know, it's just, it's such a romantic, it's such a romantic place to live anyway, but it's like, you're sort of in the romance of your young struggle, you know, and it's, uh, it's the perfect place to be uh, young and unemployed. Yeah. Now, as, as opposed to Los Angeles. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, I it, it just, New York's got a different feel, you know. Now, now, when did you, what was your first sitcom job and how did you break into it? Yeah, well, um, let me see. The first, well, at first I started writing episodes for sitcoms. There was one called Dream On that was on HBO. And I ended up writing uh, for that. And I I think I knew some, oh, yes, I knew the producer. The producer, Kevin Bright, who went on to produce and create uh, Friends, of all things. So he's loaded. Uh, he was working on that show with the same two people that created Friends, Martha, Marta. Kaufman and what I forget the other guy, the guy's name, but anyway, so he said, come in and do that. And I did. And, uh, and you talk about a line again, one line getting you work, you know, like Chevy asking me that one thing I wrote this episode and, uh, I forget what the setup of the joke was, but, uh, uh, my punchline was, yeah, it was like, uh, Sophie having a third choice, you know, <laughs> and I can't remember the setup, but the, and somebody, and, and, and I guess I got a call from somebody who saw my name on it, and, and then I got the other job. And um, so, yeah, that, I would write those kind of individual specials, and I wrote some, some different specials with Chris, Rob Reiner, the TV show, which was me, Harry Shearer, who I've worked with a million times, and Chris and, Car- and, Char- and uh, Rob Reiner, and uh, these specials, which were in vogue in those days. You know, the, you could do a one-off comedy special. But the first real... Uh, series uh where i worked a whole 28 episodes was 
the first season of Seinfeld. Larry David called me, who I knew from New York, and said, look, we, we were just going to do four, but now they're going to do, we're going to do 13. And I said, oh, I love it. I can't believe it. And, I, and to myself, I was thinking, this is so damn funny. I'm so surprised that they're, they like it at the network. I mean, it was so funny. I couldn't believe that it could be, you know, they let, they let it keep going. You know, so my wife was pregnant. It was great. I, we were about to have a baby and went out there and did 13. And then <clears throat> it began to get hot right in the middle of the year. They moved They moved it to another night and they picked up the other 10 up to 13, 14 episodes. And from there, um, it was my first personal taste and maybe last of, be, of being a semi little uh, celebrity because I go to a party there'd be celebrities there and then they, the celebrities would come over to me I heard you write for Seinfeld this is just the first season you know <clears throat> I'd never really had that experience before and so my favorite show I mean I, I love doing that so I did the first 28 shows of that and I, I wrote the one about the cafe where you know you're a bad man Jerry you're a bad man you know and where he gets the guy deported uh, Babu Bats and uh, oh, a bunch of them and um and the one about the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, and, and you pitch in on everybody else's episodes. But my favorite show was Cheers. And then so I decided I'd leave that for the first year of Seinfeld and go to Cheers, which I did. And then one thing, the Cheers was sort of the, the Rolls Royce of the uh, sitcom world. And I love that. And, uh, and then I just, one thing, you know, then it was sort of, I was in the pipeline. And a great time to be in the pipeline because sitcoms were, it was kind of the, the golden time, you know. So uh, I had never really made a, a weekly check in my whole life. You know, it's always like, ah, get this job. Oh, get that job. You know, like swinging from one monkey bar to the next. But to have, no, I was going to have a, a check for 10 months, you know. It was unbelievable. What was it like writing on Seinfeld? Because I had a bunch of writers. I think they were, wrote on season five. I had Heyman. Scrovan and Bill Masters on the show when I was in LA and they all came in the studio and they said there was never really a writing room it's like they said you would you would write and then you would like put it up to the door and it'd be like Jerry and Larry in the office and you'd never see them I mean what was your experience because you were there in the very beginning yeah uh it kind of developed into that because Larry had such a vision for what it was and so you know uh you pitch him ideas like I I had this we used this in one episode where I, I, when I was single, I was dating a woman who gave IQ tests and she kept trying to give me the IQ test. And I was afraid because I want to find out I was any dumber than I thought I was. And I said, oh, that's great for George. So you tell Jerry that or, or Larry that. And then he said, yeah, write that. And so you read a version and, and, uh, and then, the, oh God, something like that. And then they would go over it, you know, together, what you had written and so there really wasn't, I didn't even know the concept of the room of 11 screaming Jewish people yelling you know, at jokes at each other until I went to Cheers, which was a very small room of really first class. I, I got spoiled on that show because everybody, the writers were so damn funny. They were so great. But yeah, so that's kind of true how it was at Seinfeld, which made it kind of, you know, making me want to try this other uh, thing, you know, it, but it was a great place to, it was a great first credit, I'll tell you that. Now, when you went to Cheers, what was it like when you were joining the show? You know, you were new. 
I mean, is it something that, you know, I always talk to some actors who say when they go on set, you know, you have the sets where everyone welcomes you, and then you have the set where some of the people are pricks, you know, like the, 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 the guy who's, you know, whatever has, you know what I'm talking about, but what was it like yeah. when you went on to Cheers? Because, I mean, what season did you go on? What was it? Well, the joke is, it was the 11th season, and I loved it. I was going to stay. I would have stayed forever on that one. And then Ted Danson was dating Whoopi Goldberg, who talked him into leaving the show at the height of its ratings and putting everybody out of work, and he left. So I was only able to do that that last season, which was great because it got extended so many more episodes. We ended up doing like two-hour episodes and finishing it off. But anyway... To get back to, uh, you know, when you start on a show and you're a comedy writer, you're, it's always that first joke, man. You got to pitch that first. You got to hit that first ball out of, out of the park. You know, you got to get at least on base with the joke. You know, and so that that's when you get nervous. And when you get that first big laugh and it goes in the script, you're like, ah, okay, I can, you know, I'm I'm in. But uh, I, I remember. Cheers was so rich and so successful that every season they'd start with a big dinner at Chasen's Restaurant, which was the in-place. Well, it already was the out-place by that point. But in the old days of Hollywood, it was the in-place. And they'd have the room upstairs, and they'd introduce all the new writers. And the new writers would have to say something. And, uh, you know, and I, when it came to me, I said, would this be uh, the wrong time to ask for a raise? We hadn't even started the show yet. That got a laugh. But anyway, so then uh, uh, once you get a few jokes in, you know, but I already liked these guys and I was already, you know, I was already tumbling with them anyway and riffing with them. And But uh, until you get those, you, until you earn your money, until you get, you know, your jokes accepted, it's, uh, it's, it's nerve wracking. But it got, it gets less and less as you keep going, but it never goes away. Just like the next thing you write, the fear of it never goes away, which is, yeah, oh, it's a drag, but it's uh, but the fun thing about it, the, the most fun thing or exciting and scary thing that happens on a sitcom is like you've worked all week on an episode, right? And the you know, and the one joke you know is going to kill uh, dies in front of the audience, right? And so you'll hear Jimmy Burroughs or somebody go, Writers, writers, we have to run in there while the audience is in there. That joke, that joke was crap come up with something else and then if you're lucky enough to think of something right on the spot that you hadn't even thought of all week and, it, and they they decide to use it the, the audience knows that you just made it up and then they, they don't hear it then you go back and they start the line and then the audience hears the new line and it's funny it gets a big laugh that is like that's like a drug you know that it, it's it's a great great feeling and so that's that's the fun part. The bad part is you go to work at 10 in the morning, let's say, and you could be there. Well, not in Cheers so much because they had it down to such a fine-tuned machine, but you could be working there till 1, 2 in the morning. On some shows, I would be there till 2 in the morning and, you know, for no reason because the show wasn't well done. You know, I never – and there's always too many people in the room and too many, you know, egos to fill, to uh, take care of. And, but – uh and you're there so much you can't even spend any of the money. You just keep looking at your calculator going, wow, I made this today. But you don't even see sunlight, you know. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, Phil Rosenthal told me that 
he always kept a shorter writer's room because yeah. people had families and, and he's right. You know, you lose your creativity when you're in there for that long, your mind starts going to mush and people don't understand uh, that. Right. Exactly. At two in the morning, the word duty becomes the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. You know, And then you come in the next morning and then you read over what, you know, the actors are going through what you just wrote. And, oh God. He ended up putting, I can't believe we put that in the script at two in the morning. You know, it's like, so, but, yeah, and I've always felt that were too many people, too many people in the room. The thing is to have people. You, the trouble is, though, you have you're oh you're working on this show, you're working on that week, you're rewriting sh- scripts that you're going to do two and three and four weeks from now. You're hearing other ideas. You've got people out writing scripts. You're 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 getting people ready to go out to write an outline for a script, and so you're then at five or six you go to the run through and see what doesn't work, come back, order Chinese food, and write that. So it really is a, uh, it's a treadmill. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, and uh, uh, so it's, uh, you do, you do need a lot of people working, but I don't think you need them all screaming in there at the same time. Some rooms are better. It's all about who's running the room. You know, it's all about who's running that show. And, um, uh, with a good room, you know, there's no reason at all people have to be there for those hours. Now, now but, you, as you you worked on this, you know, you ended up working on Pigsty, Allen, Caroline. You started changing your title from, you know, co-executive producer. Is is that just, you're still writing. I mean, explain to the listeners, you know, what, I mean, some people say it's just the title where they don't think it'd be more money. <laughs> yeah, what that's is, it. That's basically it. You just hit it. It's. In the old days, like in the 50s, you'd see The Honeymooners, and then there'd be a crawl written by Marvin Marks, written by, written by, written by, right? That's it. But the Writers Guild, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, uh, you know, your your work really doesn't change. You just get these better titles with, you know, if you're there for the second year, they raise you, give you a raise and and give you a title. So you're co-executive producer, first your story editor, then co-executive producer, and then uh, yeah, then you're calling, unless you take over the show, you're executive producer. But you don't do anything different. It's just, it's, it sounds good, you know. They they, they got, the, the writers will got us a, a title. And uh, we got ourselves the raise, you know. Now, you, you went, from, as I said, you went from Ellen to Caroline and the City to Will and Grace. You know, they're all, they were all great shows, very funny. But you don't well, not all of them were great, but I, I appreciate you saying that. I, which one didn't you like? Well, I mean, I, I I enjoyed working on some more than the other. I enjoyed them all in some way or other. But I mean, you know, I I mean, I felt that some of them were better than the other ones. You know, I mean, that I don't want to knock any of them. But you know, Seinfeld and Carolina in the City. I mean, I, 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 Seinfeld was more along my my wheelhouse. You know, and, and it was kind of more fun to write. And uh, you know. And Ellen, the Ellen, when she bef- the year before she came out, you know, as, uh, you know, that, that was a hard thing to write. Twenty eight episodes of Ellen never dating a guy, a single woman, you know. So how many times can she get locked in the armoire or get her <laughs> thumb stuck in a bowling ball? You know, you know, <laughs> what can you do? You know, you know. So, so other, you know, they're but like any job, some jobs you like more, some but, but also I just think the quality on some were better than others, and that's just how it is. You know, in anything. Now, but why would you seem like to be with them just this season? Was it something that you wanted to move on or you got a better offer? Because 
Well, I got a better offer. Well, sometimes I wanted to move on, but uh, with Seinfeld, like I got the offer to do Cheers, and I and I thought I love that show. I'll just stay on that. You know, I could have stayed on that. I, I would have been happy to stay forever, and I could have stayed, I think, forever for as long. And so I just thought, well, I'll just go right to the top, you know. But then that ended, and then, um, you know, you get you're you're only hired for one season. It's your decision. Sometimes they want you back. Sometimes they don't. And then you have to get your own job, you know. Like, usually the people that you had the worst time, the show was, I mean, once they you're there at two in the morning, you know, you kind of want to move on from that. And not and have, I had two little kids. My wife, we just had two little kids. And so I sometimes just go for the same money, better hours, you know. Uh, I remember I could have done, they really asked me to do Murphy Brown one season, the last season of that. And I went with the Ellen show. I wish I'd gone with the other one because <laughs> their hours were better and it was a better show. But so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's just how it happened. I mean, if I, if Cheers had kept going or something, I would have been more than happy to stay with that. It's just how it worked out. Now, I know you're friends with Harry Shearer. How, how did that, how did that happen? Is charged. How yeah. did that happen? And how did you, how did you, and I know you guys collaborate. How did that whole relation start? And how do you find someone that you really want to collaborate because you've worked with a ton of writers being in writing rooms, but how did you and Harry meet and, and what made that relationship special? Oh God, I love writing with Harry. He's one of my closest friends. Uh, I met him uh, when Mike McKean moved out to LA. This is right after acting school. I would be out there doing commercials. I got real lucky with doing commercials. And in those days they paid great. And my rent was low. And so Mike went out and started working with these guys, Dave Lander, who ended up being squiggy with Mike McKean's Lenny and Harry, this guy, Harry Shearer and this other guy, Richard Beebe, he's passed on, but they were doing this radio show called the credibility gap back in LA. <clears throat> this is like 71, you know, and, um, 21, 20, and uh, this guy, Harry, who was eight years older than everyone, something like that, he was doing it. And that's when I met Harry. I met Harry when I was 21, and he was 29. I can imagine how long ago that was. And we just hit it off anyway. But then, um, and I'll never forget, you know, we were so poor that we would gossip and we'd say, you know, Harry was a child actor. He's got $30,000 saved. So Harry didn't have to do certain jobs. And Mike and Dave were always so jealous. <laughs> now, yeah, they get a job at the Ashgrove or some little club, and Harry wouldn't want to do it. And say, of course he doesn't want to do it. He has $30,000. He doesn't have to work ever again. <laughs> so, but anyway, and I forget the first thing we wrote up, collaborated on. But we've, but that's how I, I knew him. And we just, and then we've collaborated on so many things. I mean, taking trips to Haiti to write Club Paradise and, uh, we wrote a musical that was going to be going to production until the COVID hit. We wrote a musical called Jake Edgar about it's a musical based on the love affair between Clyde Tolson and J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar exclamation point. And we did it at the Aspen Comedy Festival. And so we've written musicals, we've written radio plays, uh, movies, TV shows. And uh, the great thing about Harry is it, it really, when you write with guys like that, you're so spoiled. Because you just—it's a high, you know. You come home bouncing off the walls because you're laughing your ass off all day, and all that matters is whoever came up with the best joke. There's no 
there's no competition. It's just, you know, oh, that's better. Put that in, put that in. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like playing music if with, with great people, if you can play, you know. And uh, so, yeah, Harry, uh, and that would be on Harry's radio. Harry had a radio show for 30 years called The, the, uh, the Show. And I would be on his show all the, at least once or twice a month playing different characters, all sounding like exactly like myself, of course, because I can't do any voice. <laughs> Harry, of course, is the genius voice guy. He's done does most of the voices on The Simpsons, and he's got he's Michael he's money bags now, boy. I tell you, but um, so yeah, I'd be on his radio show playing, you know, uh, Yvonne Della Femina, a uh, transsexual who started as a guy, didn't work out, became a woman again. Started as a woman that didn't work out, became a guy. You know, this is long before all this stuff now, and uh, so that's how I knew, started knowing them, and and we ent- ended up writing so much and so much. Some that got made and some that didn't, but, but all we got paid for. So, yeah. You know, as a comedy writer, and you just mentioned about you know the the sketch with the woman and the man and the woman. As a comedy writer, what are you? What is your take on? how the writing has changed. You know, people will say, oh, you can't be PC, you can't be this. You know, it still comes down to, I think funny is funny. I mean, what's your thought on that? Because you were, I mean, you know, if you look at Seinfeld now, you know, the, I know you, I believe you wrote the episode about the, the suicide. You know, people, you couldn't, yeah. people wouldn't, people wouldn't laugh at that now. They'd be like, oh, people, you know how it is. People would get pissed off. Like, if you look at back at Seinfeld, People, some people get pissed off yeah. about it. When it back yeah, the then, suicide lobby would be against you. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was so funny. But how, as a comedy writer and someone that's been in the business for so long, does it bother you that it, it's getting filtered a little bit, or do you think it's for the better that people are becoming more, as we say, woke? Uh, well, believe it or not, even back then, to do a thing about a guy uh, who committed suicide, tried to commit suicide. You know, that was a problem. They had to sort of fight for that. But anyway, um, well, I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't want to be is in those rooms. It'd be in a room today, quote, room, with a bunch of comedy writers. Because as we were talking about, you know, we'd be there at 2 in the morning. And the only thing, and the only way to keep your engine going and revving was just saying anything you wanted, making fun of this guy. There'd be a gay writer. You'd make fun of him. He'd make fun of you for being a Jew. You, you know, you'd say the worst things you, you'd say, you know, anything now you'd be in jail for saying, you know, and, but everybody knew it's like a roast, you know, you could say whatever you love everybody and everybody knows you're all kidding. But I'd be uptight about, um, being in a room and saying the wrong thing now, you know, uh, cause everybody's gone absolutely insane. Um, and it, I think they've really cut the options down with this political correctness, you know, I mean, the old, in the old days, like, I can't believe I'm the guy saying the old days now, but I, I guess I am. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you couldn't do certain things, but you couldn't do them for moral reasons. Like, you know, you couldn't show somebody sleeping together you know, on a first date or something. But then you'd find clever ways around it, which might be much more clever than just doing it. You know, so you, you, you know, and you had stories where the, where the characters didn't have a cell phone. So you had to find a way to show the audience how this person got that information or, you know what I mean? So every period came with its own headaches, but now it's the, the, um, what you can't do is so on its head 
you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's like, if you're thinking of, uh, you know, even thinking of doing a, a joke about it, somebody's weight, you, you know, you can, you know, they'll burn us torches outside your house, you know, and it's terrible. I mean, I think it's just, you know, ridiculous. Um, and people got to, you know, cool out, get a sense of humor again. Exactly. I don't. I don't. Even, I don't even think you can do self-depreciating humor anymore because people get irritated. Like I do things. I'm bald and I have a lazy eye. You know, people people get pissed at you and it's like, no, I'm 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 the bald guy. You know, and I'm I got the lazy eye. But see, people just still like they, they. It's so funny. I know a comic who's uh, he's hand, he is uh, he's crippled. He has a, a thing, and he does jokes about that. And some guy got all pissed off at him. He's like, well, my son is is crippled, and he's like, yeah. I'm crippled. Okay, I, I have I've been on a walker since I was. Yeah, a kid. but he's more crippled than you are. Exactly. It's not a competition. It's it's yeah. just it's weird how right. it's changed like that. That you can't even make fun of yourself now without someone getting pissed off. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Like if a guy who wasn't crippled did crippled jokes, he still should be allowed to do it. You know, and then you don't like him, you don't like him. But even a but a crippled guy who can't do crippled jokes. What the hell's going on? You know, it's it's like this through the looking glass kind of world now, where you don't know where you are. Now you've you've written for sitcoms, some great sitcoms. You've also written novels. How how did you get into novel writing? Was that just a progression, or was that something that you just said, "Hey, I'm going to do this"? I'll tell you. You know, it's so easy now looking back after being in showbiz for fifty years. It all now looking back, it looks like it it was organized and it had some kind of plan. You know, oh, wow, it does look like a career. But at the time, you're just hoping to get this job and losing that job and getting that job. Now, looking back, there's this kind of a trajectory to it. Um, I I had a friend who got a job at Random House. And uh, he says, you look, you know, if you write 30 pages of something and it's good, and I'll get it to the, the head people at make the decision random house and i thought god can you imagine if i wrote a book i couldn't even barely graduated high school and i mean it i I hardly read anything unless it was the you know alan ladd's biography or something or you know showbiz and uh so i just well how do you write a novel i thought well i'll just write two pages a day for 30 pages 30 days that's what the guy wanted 60 pages and that's how you write a novel and I had, the joke is I had read, I mean, my favorite writers at the time were Henry Miller and Charles Bukowski, and, and they just talked on the, in their writing. So I just wrote in the first person, and my first novel was called Almost Like Being Here, and it was just about a, a guy who was an actor in Greenwich Village, whose ex-girlfriend, the only ex-girlfriend he had, who was he still was on great terms with, and it ended even nicely, and then he gets a note she commits suicide and he gets a note kind of blaming it on him. So the whole book is about this terrible thing that happened to a very funny guy. So he's very funny, but he, he goes on this kind of adventure to find out what the hell, why did she say that? Goes to her father or the boyfriend she had, blah, blah, blah. And so they liked it. They liked the 60 pages. And then they published that one. And then when that one came out, they said, have you got another idea? And I, this is EP Dutton, which not, isn't even around anymore. Then I had another idea. And then, um, I wrote one that didn't get published, and then years later, uh, my favorite one. I like, you know, to, but then to go in and see your book in a bookstore, you know, and this and this was long enough back where people actually reviewed books. 
now there's like no papers of reviewed books or it's very very small you know the amount of books that get reviewed so i was kind of lucky i got good reviews they didn't sell any i got i got a bunch in the garage if you'd like to come over and get some good reading but but um then the last one i wrote was a really funny guy named robert sand bob sand and it was called milton marty story of the longest lasting least successful comedy writing duo in show business history and it's about these two loser writers who were so bad lame they couldn't even get blacklisted in the 50s they weren't even funny j edgar hoover didn't even think they were worth blacklisting you know and so <laughs> that's my favorite things because it's got all my show bit and it's just based on these two characters bob and i would do in the room you know and um yeah so again i stumbled into it but i think getting a book published and seeing it in the bookstore was maybe the the greatest high, you know, I think I've ever had, because I know I was in school and they put me with, with the, uh, you know, in the days you use the word retard, we can't use that now, it's a terrible word, but I'd be in there and the girl behind me be eating my paste, you know, <laughs> or eating my Crayolas, I mean, that's where, and I thought, oh, because I just couldn't, you know, I missed so much school, I never could catch up, and, you know, I was ADD and all the kind of stuff now everybody knows about, but then to get a book, wow, I'm a novelist, I mean, now, maybe is, I'm not so stupid. Now, what is it like, okay, when you when you wrote the book, and you said you got good reviews, and I'm sure you may have got a bad review here and there, but because you were always in an ensemble... Yeah, I got a couple, but... but yeah. what, how do you handle that? Because like, you, you were in an ensemble, like, with these TV shows, no one comes out and says, oh, yeah, we, that show was great, except we heard Tom Leopold wrote this line, and we don't like it. <laughs> how it's you, funny because... Yeah, go ahead. Now, how do you react to that? Like, when you sit there, it's got to be scary, because all of a sudden... You know, the good ones, you must be like, yes, but I know everyone, you know, everyone I know who's creative, you can get a hundred good reviews, but if you get one bad one, that sticks with you. And you're sitting there going, who, who's that jerk? Everyone else yeah. likes it. What's their problem? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, the reviews I got, you know, when they didn't like something, they usually didn't like it because of, of who I was who the character was like, Oh, this guy likes to, they likes to try to get a lot of girlfriend girls in bed. So he's a sexist. And that would be the review. It wouldn't even be about so much the writing, you know? Um, I would always be, I, I, I mean, I was just so thrilled to have a book out and the, there was enough decent reviews that amazed me that I got any decent reviews that I, I didn't really, it didn't really upset me too much, you know? Uh, I would be. I would get much more upset if I wrote a spec script that didn't get made. You know, I've got so many things that I wrote that I absolutely loved that never got made. Some things I wrote I loved got made, and some didn't. So it's like you know you're a you're a painter, right? You're having a gallery show, and and you know nobody buys any. There's no little red dots on any of your paintings, and and you put them back in your car and take them home. You know? So writing things that I love that never went anywhere was, has always been more painful than you know, whatever anybody might have said about my writing, you know. Now, we had talked earlier, you know, you said about the Jewish comedy writer. Well, now you're Catholic, I believe. Yep. Uh, okay, how did that happen? Because it's so funny. I, my, my wife's Catholic, and uh, I'm Presbyterian, and we got married last September. And Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It was just our anniversary. And, and I remember we wanted to get married, and it's my second marriage, and she wanted a big wedding. We're both over 50. I said, all right. 
And we, we went to the Catholic Church, and I was so livid because I'm divorced. I couldn't get married there. And I'm like, you give money every week. And I'm just like, oh, but she's she's devout Catholic. So we had to find something close to Catholicism. I'm Presbyterian. Oh, it's too bad. But it's so fun. Yeah. But we ended up getting married at a great place by a Pastor Wayne. It was a beautiful uh, church. But now for you, Judaism and Catholicism are so different. I mean, I remember when yeah. I was in high school, I, grew, I dated a Jewish girl, and I took her to church on christmas eve one night and she's like don't tell my parents and i didn't understand back then why because there's a difference in religion but it's so different how did you end up being a catholic well it's it's uh an amazing story as a matter of fact i i uh i was doing a long for a long time a one-man show called the comedy writer finds god and i was doing it all over the country different churches and different groups of people and um, I was, you know, I, when you're been a Jew for 60 years, you know, I have a joke where I said, you know, there's not much more you can get out of it. You know, 60 years is plenty. But no, the thing is, I, we, I'm very Jew. I still feel very Jewish. I consider myself Jewish and Catholic. I mean, you can't be a comedy writer all your life. And, you know, I mean, I'm so Jewish to the bone. It's so much a part of who I am. But we were never bar mitzvah. I'm one of four boys. Uh, my parents would rather listen to show tunes than take us to temple. And uh, my parents only joined a synagogue to audition for the shows that they would have. You know, <laughs> true. They heard they were doing My Fair Lady at Temple Beth Am. They'd go to that temple and join, auditioning, and get in the show, and they were good, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, so I always consider myself very Jewish, but not, not religious, whatever. And... Uh, through one of my children's uh, illness, who now, thank God, is, is fine. It was a horrible time. And uh, for the first time, I really prayed. Like, no kidding, prayed. You know, not like, uh, but because I'd never been and learned anything about my religion, I found myself praying like I'd see somebody pray on television, you know, like on Wagon Train when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> dear Lord. You know, if you only let that little girl get well and we don't get killed by the Comanches, you know, or whatever. But, so I didn't know. So I just one night I was it was a really desperate time and I just really prayed. And then all these super these literally these supernatural little incidences started happening. And I so many, in fact, that I just finally said, OK, I get it. I get it. And uh, that's it's a long story to go into, but it's quite a and so. I don't, I'm, I'm not smart enough to make some intellectual decision, you know. Stuff like that had to happen to me to uh, to bring me up on board, you know. And it's really been a wonderful thing in my life. But it's been interesting how people have reacted to my conversion. I've lost a couple of friends over it and, uh, you know, gained a lot more. And, um, you know, and as a matter of fact... My, uh, my best friend is Paul Schaefer, the, uh, from, the piano player from The Letterman Show. We've been best friends for 40 years. And when I converted, Paul's very devout Jew. Uh, he threw me a Tom Leopold's very last day as a Jew roast at uh, Sammy's Romanian <laughs> kosher restaurant. And all my friends came and roasted me. Harry Shearer came as an Orthodox rabbi and tried to do an intervention. And, Harry, and Paul's opening line at the dinner was, is, how about this place? Isn't this great? Does Tom Leopold know how to abandon his people or what? <laughs> that was his opening line. And uh, 
so that was a beautiful night and uh, you know a warm wonderful night but yeah so my story is that you know and uh and it's really been a, a great comfort in my life although i i still think yiddish and dress british you know now when you said you did some go to churches and stuff like that what would your show before covid what would your show contain would you tell stories like you just told me and and what would people's reaction be to you? <laughs> well that's really a great question because um, do you like when people say great question? Oh, I love Have it. Have you noticed everybody <laughs> says great question to everybody? Great question, you know? <laughs> so I thought I'd give you one of those for free, man. <laughs> but, uh, well, the first time I did it, I thought, oh, Lord, it's, I it was doing it at my church in their, you know, in their, uh, they had a gym at the church. And I did it for the priest. And, uh, and I thought, is this going to be irreverent? Am I going to get, I mean, I, it, Am I going to get kicked out of the Catholics? I mean, the Jews won't take me back, you know. But they said, no, it's great. And I thought, oh, God, some people are going to hate me. Some Jews are going to hate me because I converted. Some Catholics are going to hate me because it is. Uh, old people, they'll never get the joke. Some people, And the joke was everybody laughed at the same things. Everybody cried at the same thing. Because it has some drama in it because of what I went through. But, but 75% of it is jokes, you know, like uh uh, which is true. I grew up on a golf course in Miami. My father couldn't play on because it was restricted. They didn't allow Jews on it. And we lived on the golf course. So somebody would hit a ball in my yard. And my father would go, look, Gentile, here they come. You know? And uh, so that's the kind of stories I tell. But I tell kind of the story of my life and then the, the story of my uh, child going through this stuff and what these, these events that happened throughout it. And leading up to my roast, the end of it is the roast Paul threw for me and then getting baptized. And it's about an hour. And I play music and I, I played a couple of songs that I, I, I and uh, that's it, you know. And it's just, and I, and I was amazed, honestly, at how many people would come up to me uh, at the end crying and saying, oh, my kid is this or, oh, that, or they moved me. And I was, you know... Uh, it was, it was a remark. I don't even know why I did it. It just sort of happened again. And I got so much out of it. Just that, God, I'm touching people. I, and not just Catholic people. You know, it somehow it resonated. I, I, don't ask me how. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Now, it was you, funny, real funny. And so it got laughs. And it allowed people to let the, the heart part of it sink in, I think. Now, do you miss it? this picture. Do you miss it because right now we're with COVID and you can't get out and do it? Do you miss that part of part of your life? No, I, I don't. You know, it took a lot out of me to do it, uh, to be so personal. And uh, so I feel like I did it. You know, I did my little apostolate. And uh, I haven't done it for a while. I don't miss doing that. It, it, you know, it's like playing, playing a heavy part for a long time. You know, I don't... It was, uh, you know my personal story and who the hell wants to hear that anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. You know, I yeah. can't, I'm beside myself, which should be my favorite position. You know, now it's interesting that, you know, when you were becoming Catholic, I know you were, you had a serious radio show with a priest. Yeah. What, what, what was that like? Cause it's, well, such, it wasn't I mean, serious. Oh, you mean serious radio? Yeah. 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 Well, there again, there's another thing that, out of the blue, the priest that brought me into the faith who I met through this weird, series of events that could never have really happened but he as soon as i became catholic he got put in charge of catholic radio on serious radio 
And he calls me and he says, look, I want you to do a weekly show with a priest and be, be who you are, be funny. And I said, Father, I don't, I've been Catholic for three weeks. I don't know anything. <laughs> and he says, well, that's what I want. I want you, the priest, will, and you'll ask questions. And I, I said, okay. You know, and I worked with this really great guy who I love very much, Father Leo Padalinghug. And he was funny and I was funny. And I just would ask what I really was interested in knowing and I didn't, and it turns out so many other ca- real Catholics, cradle Catholics, as they called them, didn't know the same, some of the same, same things I didn't know. And, uh, it became kind of popular and, uh, you know, and, uh, I learned more about Judaism doing that than I ever learned as a Jew, you know, because it just was Judaism right through Catholic Christ was Jewish. And, and uh, I don't know if anybody knows it. Keep that under your hat. Mike, will you? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that getting out. Now, what's the future hold for you, Tom? You know, you've, you've worked with so many great people. You've had such a great career. You know, you're getting older, and I always say people go, do, do entertainers ever retire? I go, no. Like, I was talking to Gregory Harrison, and I said, I talked to him a few weeks ago. I go, Greg, I said, are you? He goes, I'll just keep acting until they got to wheel me off set. I mean, you know, you're still writing. You write award shows. You wrote the Mark Twain stuff with Letterman. You know, yeah. are you still getting writing jobs? I mean, do you are you yeah. pursuing? I mean, do you pursue them now, or do you wait for people to come to you? Um, mostly, it's come to me. You know, uh, uh, I guess my agent. You know, my agent's out there looking. I guess somewhat. So he says. But most of these things come to me. Uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, well, right now, Paul Schaefer and I. You know, we videoed Jerry Foley, who directed the Letterman Show all those years actually brought a crew and and shot the roast 10 years ago of everybody roasting me, you know, and now we're putting it together as a, as a, as a film, as a documentary, but a a mockumentary, right. With people being interviewed who were there, Richard Belzer, blah, 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 all the people. And so now we're we're working on that to put that together as a movie. Um, I may be doing this animated voiceover show that I do a lot with Jonathan Katz, the great comedian, Dr. Katz, um, and I write speeches. You know, this is another thing because I spent so many years doing the Mark Twain Awards in Washington. I met a bunch of political writers. Uh, so I, a few years ago, I, I got, you know, I, I got a job writing for my. I wrote comedy speeches for Su- Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Wendy, you know, both sides of the aisle. Wendy Wasserman. Wasserman? I forget her name. You know, from my aunt from Florida, uh, I wrote written for three time head of the CIA Robert Gates. Uh, I, you know, I, I've written for all these uh, political people, how, real high up. You know, so that's it. And I'm, and I'm about to do another one for you know for dinners for like gridiron dinners and jokes for that kind of thing. And uh, that's been a wonderful kind of experience. And I just did this finished the sketch show, and we were about to do more and and, and try to sell it called Dweck. Which was a sick, which was a sketch show, which I love the sketch format, you know. And uh, we shot all this stuff, and then the COVID hit just as we were taking it out to, you know, see if somebody will put it on. So um, now I really do stuff I uh, short money, but lots of uh, I enjoy it. There's stuff I really want to do. So yeah, I'm still doing it. I mean, I don't know. I, it's what I do, you know. Well, I, mean, I don't have any other. The only other hobby I have is going to see bad entertainment with my friends. You know, 
We only go to see the worst entertainment we can because we find that so much more interesting than good entertainment. I go with Paul Schaefer, Harry, Chris Guest, uh, Belzer, and we have a and we have a saying: "What if we go and it's good?" We go, "Well, we'll leave. It's just fucking money, you know." <laughs> Before we go, I got one question for you. You just mentioned those guys; they're all brilliant, comedic minds and just entertainers. When you guys would sit around in a diner or at someone's house just hanging out on them, having a cocktail or having a cigar or having some coffee. Is there any one-upsmanship? Because the old thing about comics is, like, if you go into a room with a bunch of stand-up comics, when one person talks, they always stand up because they're so used to being on the stage. Like, you can sit there and they they have to tell their story. And you can be people and they'll get up. You know, this thing. What is it yeah, like when yeah. you guys are hanging out, just hanging out? I mean, is it is there anything ever, like, serious talk or is it just so damn funny no, that you can't no breathe? No serious talk. No serious talk at all. As a matter of fact, like, I'll come home. Paul and I are, are a couple of us. At least once a week, we'll get, you know, not now, but we get together and go see some bad interview or just go to dinner and laugh our asses off and... You know, my wife knows Paul. You know, well, what'd you guys talk about? Well, we just talked about that show we saw in 1988. What do you mean? You didn't ask how their wives were or their kids? No, it didn't even occur to us. We're just doing shtick, you know. Always, it's like oxygen, you know. It's just, it's just all you want to do. It's the competition is, is just to make the other person laugh, and and you so seldom are around people who make you, and it sounds arrogant, but make you laugh as much as you can make other people laugh. That's why if I go to a party with, you know, my wife goes, oh, you're so anti-social. Well, there's nobody funny here. I don't know how to, <laughs> what do you want from me? It's a nightmare. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm always nice and stuff, but, but when you're with your, you know, people you can play music with, you know, and it's all you want to do, you know? So, well, no, we don't talk about anything important at all. We just do bits and laugh and laugh and laugh as much as we can. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Tom. You know, I, 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 I know your work. We became friends on Facebook. It's so funny how you become friends with people on Facebook just because you have mutual friends. And then they always end up on my show. Like, I interviewed Joel Zwick a few weeks ago. And oh, sure. I, I know of his work, but it just he made a comment about a young director I know who he knows. And so I hit him up. And he came on. And it's always cool because, you know, you've you've had such a great uh, history of comedy writing. And, I'm, I mean, me and my wife love Seinfeld. I mean, it's like, you know, when I taught her what episode, she was like, oh, you know, oh, my God. Because she knows every episode inside <laughs> out. And so I want to thank you. Now, now, are you on social media? Are you on Twitter or anything or Instagram? Uh, I, I kind of forget to go on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram. My daughters are always pushing me. But, you know, I'm just on Facebook. And, and people make fun of me because I don't have a website. Say, but if you want to get in touch with me, just go to Facebook. I'll friend you. You know, I'm friending people in Zambia, you know, who are asking me, uh, telling me I have a lot of money over there. i got to get over there and get some of it. But well, I <laughs> I'm sure it's there. I, you know, you don't know that. i got 500000 uh, waiting for me in, uh, you know, well, you know, in I always, Kuwait. I always say there's probably some sexy girl with big breasts who's wondering why everybody's turning down her friend request on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, people, check out Tom Leopold. Uh, thank you so much, people. Go check out Tom Leopold. Look him up. Look him on IMDb. Go watch his old episodes. There's a TV shows, and you'll enjoy it. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 800 episodes. Email me at cooper, coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.